You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Peer Pleasure Podcast. I am your host, Dewey, and we're glad to have you back listening to us today. Tonight, we have a very special episode of a very, very, very dear friend of mine, Mr. Mike Kaminsky from K-Management. You may know his artists, uh, 303, Dia Frampton, The Somerset, the list goes on and on. Mike is a fantastic guy, and I had a blast talking to him. We've known each other for a really long time. He managed Fear Before the March of Flames when we were on tour together. Uh, met Mike in a sleeping bag, literally on the floor. This little guy, I thought he was this huge dude uh, from all the stories I'd heard about him. But he's just a small small guy with a huge heart and uh, a lot of knowledge and a lot of skills. So I'm really happy with this episode with Mike. We had a great talk. I can't wait for you to hear it. So uh, let's go ahead and get into it. Mike Kaminsky here on the Peer Pleasure Podcast. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for tuning in to the Peer Pleasure Podcast. I'm here with the man, the myth, the legend, Mike Kaminsky from K Management. Uh, manages such artists as 303, uh, D.F. Frampton, Somerset. Um, started started humble beginnings, but uh, I wanted to get into that in a second here. So, Mike, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, no problem. Thanks for joining the, the podcast. I know it's... Uh, it was kind of out of the blue, but uh, I appreciate you being on. Always a pleasure. So uh, I want to start uh, kind of from the beginning on uh, where you grew up and, and uh, kind of what your parents did and, and how your childhood was kind of forming you into where you are now. Uh, I grew up in a suburb of Los Angeles before the Internet was invented. Uh, so I remember that day. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was cool. Uh, driving around LA um, before cell phones, and um, you know when I was first starting in music, 
getting my big meeting with someone and uh, literally having to map it all out and driving the night before to make sure I had all my directions properly so that the next day I could show up on time. Uh, <laughs> but I grew up in the suburb of L.A. Uh, parents were both dentists. And I did not even listen to music until high school. Um, I think I just had my nose in a book all the time. I didn't even realize it existed. And then when I got in, I got in real deep. Uh, so just kind of consumed my life and realized I couldn't really picture myself doing anything else. Uh, so here I am all these years later still doing it. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I, I had no idea your parents were dentists. That's the... I, I thought yeah, that well, I talk about it a lot. I'm super... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and I think they secretly were thinking maybe I'd take over the old family business. But um, yeah, definitely went, went a different route. Uh, but I guess it was nice. They were dentists so that I could uh, go into liberal arts. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, uh, nice. yeah. Yeah, well, right on, man. And and so you said you weren't into music until high school. What what uh, what was your exposure to that? Like, what got you into um, you know music? I know a lot of us started from the early age, and you know, I, I know I had like Michael Jackson when CDs came out that Christmas. Yeah. I got a CD player, and I got CD uh, MC Hammer, and I got uh, Debbie Gibson, and and uh, anything my dad thought would be. Oh, cool. you got the hits. Oh man, yeah. he. He worked for a radio station briefly on Friday nights, and, and I'd go in there with him, and I couldn't be in the room, so I'd go sit in the room with all the records, and it was on this little island in Alaska, and it had, I'd be listening to Wilson Phillips and anything that was catchy, and, <laughs> and so, yeah. Dude, the first cassette I remember finding and being able to listen to was Whitney Houston, I think it was like the Bodyguard soundtrack or something oh, like that, man. so, yeah, <laughs> all good, it's funny where we start, um, so I went, um, I went to Thousand Oaks High School, and it was like a very like breakfast club moment. Uh -huh. um, but there was like a bunch of kids, and they couldn't fill one of our periods, so they just put us in the auditorium. And every day, instead of like having history or math, you were just like supposed to go to the auditorium. Uh, so the first day, I sat down with a bunch of random kids. And over the course of the year, we all became like best friends. Um, and it was like a completely diverse and weird group of people. Um, and one of them was just really into music and, you know, kind of led me to my first exposure. Uh -huh. And uh, yeah, if I think about it, I probably wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for him. Well, that's crazy. I mean, that's it's funny how things like that work out you know, it, what kind of shapes your life. You think you're going one direction and you end up going a complete different one. You had no idea. Totally true. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I, I mean, high school for me too, and, and middle school, actually meeting some friends in detention actually were, were Joe and, uh, and, uh, from anatomy and, uh, ah, yeah, of course they'd be in detention. <laughs> yeah. In detention and, and getting yelled at by the teacher. And I was just trying to make it through. I got in there cause I was late to class. He did something horribly wrong. And, and, uh, I was like, who's that kid in the flannel with the bowl cut? He's kind of cool. And uh, that started the whole thing. Like, oh, I play guitar. You want to learn how to play guitar? And that, and that shaped that portion of my life anyway. But um, it's, it's hilarious how, how little, little things can, can change the complete trajectory of your life. 
Uh, speaking of, uh, I'm sure there's a question on this, but I'll just tell you because it's on topic. So that kid who got me into music, uh-huh. um, we remained friends for a long time. We're, I mean, we're still friends, but we were like very, very close uh, living in the same city. And I was doing a lot of video work. So um, I had always just thought from a very, very, very young age, I was going to be working in film and wanted to work on movies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, after I met him, it was a lot of music videos. And my career actually started as a music video director. Um, but we were uh, at Warp Tour together. Huh. And we were so poor, we couldn't afford any of the food at Warp Tour. And him and I, like, by chance, noticed that they were filming a TV show behind one of the stages at Warp Tour. Uh-huh. And so, um, of course, the the production had catering back there and we're so hungry and we like don't have any money and we're just like dude there's so much food there's gonna throw it out it's like all gonna go to waste we gotta get back there so we like sneak around long story short we're back there like eating food so happy uh there's this like woman at the catering table um you know kind of an older woman uh and just like hanging out we can't like okay so we're just like talking i'm telling about everything we're doing and, um, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just working really hard. I'm like, making these videos. It's really cool. Here's some of the stuff I'm working on. But really just, like, on a friendly level. And, um, you know, she's like, oh, well, you know, I'm working on the production here. If you want, I can, like, pass your name around. And uh, she gave me her card. And, you know, that was that. And we went to finish Warp Tour and had a good time. So three or four days later, I find that card in my pocket. And I go, oh, man, like, I'm going to call this person. But let me figure out who she is. So I go on to Alta Vista, uh, because Google didn't exist yet, uh-huh. uh, on my dial-up modem. I punch her name in, and she manages the Smashing Pumpkins. And I was like, holy smokes. Oh, man. <laughs> so I called her up, and I was like, hey, do you still need an intern? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, cool, I'm available. She's like, great, come over tomorrow. And uh, I drove over, and that was where uh, Kevin Lyman was working. And so I met Kevin, and, you know, I've been working in the same office as Kevin Lyman now for, like, over 10 years because we met on that. Uh Um, I worked on my first feature through that company. Um, I made, like, so many many of my my early career contacts were made uh, through that internship based on a random woman I met uh, sneaking backstage at Warped Tour. So, yeah, you really <laughs> never can guess. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I, I remember that that touches on a couple questions because I was going to bring up uh, you uh, You had worked for Kevin Lyman at one time, right? Or were you work, You were like an assistant or PA for him? or? Uh, yeah, um, so I had – I just always thought I was going to do – uh, video work. And so I, I went to college, mm-hmm. um, UC San Diego with like a business and, um, economics backgrounds. And my third year in, I'm in advanced economics and the teacher's going on about some of them. I'm just like, dude, I'd never want to do this with my life. Like this is a mistake. And I got up and I walked out of class mid class and, um, went to the, there was like an on campus television station. So I went and got super, super involved 
uh, and basically turned it from like a two-person operation to like a 15-person operation and got uh, a bunch of grants from the school to like get all these, um, uh, you know, new pieces of equipment. And this was right when Napster started. So I was just sitting on Napster finding bands I really liked, emailing them going like, hey, I just got this grant to get all this equipment. I have a crew of 15 people. If you want a music video, uh, just show up and we'll do one for free. Like uh-huh. it's all right to go. Um, so one of the first bands that I ever wrote back was this little band from Long Island who uh, showed up and slept on my couch for three days and then played, they literally played a shack um, at my school, uh, which held like 80 people. And we, um, you know, we did like our first video with them. It was like, I think their first or second video was our first video. Um, and that was a band called Taking Back Sunday. And oh, so, we, uh, yeah, we, we stayed in, in touch and, um, you know, like continued to do some video stuff, but I was still doing video work. When I graduated college, all of my friends were like, uh, hey, you know, I'm, I got this great job to go work at a bank or I got this great job to go work at a software company um, or whatever. And I was like, well... I got a lot of time to do that. Why don't we just like start a record label? You know, like we, we know all these cool bands. We're like finding all these like young bands on Napster. Let's just do it. And nobody would do it with me. Every single person was like, um, you know, I don't really uh, like know how to do that. So I'm just going to go get a job. Uh, so I said, screw it. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to just take a year and see what happens. So I was doing video production work and running in. Uh, as much as a very young person could be running um, a record label. Mm -hmm. And then this coincidence started, and I got my internship at this company. I met Kevin Lyman, and uh, we immediately hit it off. I was technically a film intern, and he was in music, but I would always wander down to his office uh, because he treated me with such respect and was really, really interested in you know, what I actually had to say. Uh-huh. And as an intern anywhere, I think that's extremely rare. Uh, so we would always just hang. And then he ended up hiring me for a summer to um, work on his record label. And so that was like my first time out on Warp Tour and working with the bands out on Warp Tour and getting a bunch of stuff done. Um, and when he uh, decided, you know, he didn't want to do the label anymore, he wanted to focus more on touring and production, uh, he was like, well, you know what? You don't have to leave why don't you just stay here in the office and you can just work out of the office until you figure something out um and then that's when i started my management company and you know ended up paying rent and hiring people and then just kind of been together for 10 years dude that is awesome i he and kevin yeah, kevin was in uh he was a stage manager for a while right that's how he got his start into the whole situation there was that was that how he got into that uh, he was doing, like, production for a lot of bands. But, like, really big bands would hire Kevin, uh, yeah, to do, like, a lot of their stage production and stage management. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was the dude pushing road cases around uh, in clubs and worked his way up. And when he was kind of done with the whole thing, it was like, well, you know, I'm just going to call all my friends from all the bands I've worked with, and we're going to go just do this last tour and say goodbye. And that was, you know, the early inklings of the Warp Tour. Okay. Um, so he, he's definitely like grounded in the real, um, you know, like the real live business of being on tour, which I think is so important for anyone working in music to really see what it's like 
you know, in these little clubs, having mm-hmm. five kids show up sometimes, uh, figuring out like, you know, what living off $5 a day is like. Uh, but he comes from that background and, you know, with that knowledge built into Warped. And I, I was always just so impressed with that and really interested in it and really couldn't imagine anyone else in my whole life I would want to be working for and then with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's awesome. I, I, I <laughs> when we did uh, Warp Tour 2004, I think it was our first experience with that, and we were super stoked. And I remember randomly walking in. It was one of the dates. Uh, I think it was the first or second night, first second day. Uh, we actually had restroom facilities, not just a porta potty. And and uh, I walk in there, and and uh, there's a guy standing at the urinal, and kind of tall dude, and and uh, glasses, and. And uh, so I'm standing next to him doing my thing, and and uh, he's like, "Hey, what's your name?" I said, "Oh, it's Dewey." And he's like, "Oh, hi, I'm Kevin." And that was my <laughs> first and last handshake at a urinal. He right. literally put his hand over, and of course, I shook yeah. his hand. And right. uh, I was like, "Cool." And we we talked from. He's like, "What band are you from?" And I told him Anatomy of a Ghost. And he's like, "Oh yeah, you guys. I hear about you guys. Like, you're on my stage." I was like, "Yeah, the Kevin Says stage." And and. Uh, He's like, well, right on. Well, I'll be out there checking you out. I was like, cool. And and uh, I was like, Kevin says, Kevin says. And then I realized that's Kevin Lyman. And right, right. <laughs> we ran to each other a bunch more on that tour. And, and after two weeks, which we were only booked for two weeks, he uh, wanted us to continue on. And, and uh, because he's like, you know, I hear good things and moved us to the Volcom stage and then uh, put us on main stage in Portland, our hometown. And we totally slept in and missed our set. <laughs> so that was oh, great. Sorry, yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> so that- um, if there's, um, you know, anyone that uh, I can talk about on this session, um, for, you know, as briefly as time allows, um, it would be Kevin because I know from the outside perspective, there's so many kids out there looking in, going like, I'm like, why do you do things this way, and why do you do this things this way, and I have this opinion and this criticism and all this stuff. And it's like, I, I wish I could communicate to all these kids. Um, there is so much going on behind the scenes that you have no idea about. But in my entire career, the person who has always treated me with the most respect and I think is the most artist-friendly person I've ever met in my whole life still is Kevin Lyman. Um, and has made so many people's careers, so many pe- bands' careers, so many companies' careers, mm-hmm. uh, to no p- personal gain of his own, mm-hmm. just because he really believes in things and um, has kept prices so affordable so that kids can continue to come and support a scene in a community. And it's just that guy that's just like, you know, he. a lot of other festivals, um, not all of them, but a lot of them, you know, the people doing the festivals are sitting in an office um, or sitting around while, you know, like hiring a bunch of staff to do everything. Mm-hmm. And Kevin is boots on the ground, like doing everything. Like everything goes through Kevin. Kevin knows every single move. He books every band. He talks to every person on tour. Um, and he loves it. And people love him. And he's just, uh, I look at the music scene and the music community I grew up in, uh-huh. and it would not exist if it wasn't for Kevin. Yeah. I mean, he really, he really took it to the next level. And, and I remember seeing him sitting on a lawn chair out front of a bus. And I was like, oh, that must be Kevin's bus. And, and I was chatting with him. I was like, oh, this is your bus? And he's like, well, me and 15 other people. 
And right there, I was like, man, this guy <laughs> yeah. could have his own. But I mean, bands that, you know, two or three buses so they can all have their own space. I mean, Kevin's sleeping on the couch some nights, people were saying in there. And, and uh, yeah. you know, he's out there every morning, you know, running things, doing whatever he has to do, carrying water. I mean, it's that it's that uh, 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 that lead by example mentality he has. I mean, and he's one of those people you would work hard for and, and respect, like you're saying. I mean, he, that's why it's lasted so long. And his his he's so forward thinking. I mean, he comes from that. It seems like that you know skate punk um, that stuff that was really popular in the '90s, which shifted completely. And he saw that coming. And it seems like mm. he tailored Warp Tour's uh, lineups to follow that uh, way. But when people were saying, "Hey, this is weird," you know, you're not putting these screaming bands on on. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. our punk rock tour. And then two years later, it's like, wow, that was the right decision. That's the band everyone's listening to and keeping the numbers up and, and, and all that. He just seems very, very forward thinking. And that's what you need. But Well, on top of that too, and, and I imagine we'll be talking about this in a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, but I get so many kids and so many bands come in going just like, God, I, I just wish I could get an agent or I just wish this person would hire me or I just wish this thing would happen or this thing would happen. Like, like what, what am I doing? Like, how do I study for that or do anything? And in the arts and the business we're in, um, like I, I can tell you, I graduated from college, right? Had a fairly decent GPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount of times anyone has even asked me ever whether a formal job interview or a banner, uh, if I even went to college, has been zero. Uh, everyone asks, like, well, what have you done? Like, what have you made? What have you put on? What have you worked? And, and Kevin epitomizes, like, the complete idea of in music. It's like, just go out and start doing stuff. Like, mm-hmm. believe in something and go out and do it. And he did that with Warped Tour. And he supports other people who do that. Mm-hmm. And I've seen them all the time. Like kids come in and are like, "Look, I have this thing going on. Um, if you know, it, now if I get a little bit of attention on it, uh, it will really help." And Kevin will be like, "Oh, cool. Well, why don't you come out for a week or do something like that?" Mm-hmm. And that's how you grow a community, and that's how you grow support. Um, but it's really just it's like, yeah, like if you want to succeed and do well, you got to do it, right? And, yep. and for me, it was starting a record label. I, I never had training on how sales worked. It was me picking up the phone and literally calling record stores, begging them to take one copy of this record I had, right? And mm-hmm. I've never done marketing, and it was literally me, you know, pretty much cold calling Jason Tate at Absolute Punk, going like, hey, I'm some kid in my mom's basement, <laughs> but I have this record I really believe in. Um, you know, I never booked a tour before. It was me calling venues, Literally just going like, uh, I don't really know how this works, but I have this band and I promise you we're going to sell, you know, 50 tickets tonight. Um, the whole aspect of everything is like, you just, you just got to do it. And I think, um, you know, the Warped Tour and Kevin in particular, like really embodies that I, that idea within the music industry. Sure. And, and you've always had, I mean, from the time I've known you, we've known each other a long time from the fairly early on it seems like from the management side but the the your approach has always been really uh honest and and uh you know sincere i mean that's one thing i noticed when we first met we were 
because I had heard about you beforehand because the Fear Before guys were talking, you know, uh, about their manager, Mike, and all this stuff. And, and uh, I was just, I was picturing this just powerhouse, you know, and uh, then we met and I was like, <laughs> yeah, man, yeah. yeah. And I think I've said something about that too. And I first met, I was like, wow, you do not look anything like I thought you would look. And, uh, you know, especially yeah. because I'm so enormous. <laughs> and uh, here's little Mike. And, and uh, I was like, man, that's the guy doing all this stuff. And uh, I think we were, I'm, I'm looking, I've made some notes because I was remembering just back, I think we were at uh, Kate's house in Long Beach. And you were, uh, you were sleeping on the floor with us. I mean, like in a sleeping bag, uh, talking about the next moves for, for Fear Before. And I think that was... That was after Auto People Shake and before Art Damage, and uh, yeah. and the Gatsby's guys were there, and we were all just talking. And I was talking with Bobby for hours, wandering around that that parking lot, talking about the lyrics for Ribbons and Sugar, which is one of the best albums I've ever heard to this day. And I, I had agree. no idea he was writing the lyrics to that. I thought Nick wrote the lyrics, and so and I was like, man, these. And I'm going over lines with him, and, and he's telling me what these events in his life were about and and what had happened with his mom and, and all these things. And I was like, man, that is some heavy stuff. So that record is even more special to me now after having those conversations. I wish I had those recorded. That was an awesome conversation. But uh, anyway, you were in the trenches with the rest of us. I mean, and that was what was so cool is you had no – I mean, there was no difference between artist and manager, which was so cool to see because all of our people we dealt with were always in, you know, big old offices or, or had all these big promises and, and stuff like that. And, and it was, we had no idea what we were doing. I mean, we met with, um, I think Nick Storch at one point and I only had that one meeting with him, Mm -hmm. but he had, he, he basically was just like, I can do this for you. I can do this for you, this for you. And uh, I know we talked to him, and, and I don't think anything ever happened there. We ended up going with another manager, but it was always a, a separation. Like, we'd call and uh, need something, and, and it would get worked out, but it was it was always like, oh, i got to call the manager instead of, oh, i got to call Mike, you know. Um, and that's one yeah. thing the guys always oh, talked about is being, you know, uh, like a fifth or sixth member of the band. Um and that's something that I wanted to get into as well is, is kind of how K-Management came to be following those guidelines and kind of how you developed this philosophy. I know you're saying Kevin had a lot to do with that, but you seem to go about things, you know, instead of like a DIY, it's like a, a JDIY, like a just do it yourself, like just get out and do it. And these things may or may not happen, but but give it an honest shot and it will work. So I guess kind of how did K-Management come to be? Um, I know you were with Gatsby's and Fear Before and Fear Before the March of Flames at the time. Um, the time. And uh, and then you got involved. And this all kind of branched out to, you know, through Fear and Gatsby's getting in with Casey Bates and into managing yeah. producers. And uh, so can you talk on that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you for the kind words. Um, I think all of us, especially who work in this business, especially artists, um, you know, but uh, especially me, um, I think we all know that, you know, the thing we leave behind is our music or, you know, a name of some kind. And, you know, I, I know our time here is short, especially in music time is short. And I feel like the only thing you really have is, is the name and the reputation and, you know, the art you've worked on when you're gone. And so, you know, at, at just a very core level, 
Um, I think you always have to just believe very strongly in what you're doing and the people you choose to work with. And I think probably the hardest part is choosing who you want to work with. And maybe there's like really big companies, really big bands or really big stuff that you think or can really further your career. Um, but if they're kind of just not like minded as you, I think, you know, when there's a, the right fit. Um, and, and that's always been my guiding principle is, is, um, you know, hopefully there's just a lot of people who really believe in what they're doing and if I can find those people and work with those people, um, when you have a great team, you can really do anything. Uh, with that said, in the beginning, <laughs> there was no team. It was me living in my parents' basement. Um, and, you know, really having, I guess, the good fortune of, of, you know, having parents who said, yeah, sure, like, you're a college graduate and you can come home and uh, work at a record label and manage bands and, um, yeah, you can you can stay at our house again. So that was, like, step one. That was really, that was really cool. Mm -hmm. um, but it was really just, it was seeing um, Fear Before at this tiny cafe uh, just going completely bananas uh, and me going like, okay, I have to figure out how to work with this, you know, how to work with this band. So I had the record label going, um, pretty much sunk all of my money over two years into the label, uh, which I had saved a considerable amount of money through college. I was working full time, uh, you know, while also going to school, putting money away, knowing I wanted to do something on my own after college, mm -hmm. um, putting some money into music videos. I was doing a lot of video work. Uh, started this label, lost all of my money over two years. And finding fear before going like, well, I got to figure out how to do this. And doing a little bit of research, um, again, before the internet, it was, you know, a lot of reading books um, and going, oh, well, if I'm a manager, I can do almost the same thing, but I can find, you know, another label to find it. That sounds awesome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I uh, sort of switched into management and was managing fear before. And they were like, oh, we got these great buddies in Gatsby's. You should meet them. And I met them. And uh, we were all just the best of friends. And I think that's how, you know, pretty much all relationships have to start if you start working with people because it's, you know, business. Um, I feel like those are the people that when things get tough, maybe they're not going to be there. Maybe you can't always get them on the phone as a manager talking to a band and as a band talking to a manager or if it's an agent or a label or whoever. Um, I think the most important thing is like, making sure you share this core philosophy and this core vision of, you know, why everyone's doing what they're, what they're really doing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was working in management and that band I did a video for taking back Sunday, uh, started to do some more stuff with them and hit up the manager for uh, pizza one night. And I was like terrified cause she was like the, 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 you know, like the most important manager I'd ever known at that point. And taking back Sunday was like one of my favorite bands um, as they were starting to grow mm -hmm. and was just like, look, I'm running the label. I'm like working with these bands. I don't know what I'm doing, but can I just take you to pizza, please? Like, I just like would love to ask you a million questions over the course of an hour. And, uh, we went to, <laughs> I think I took her to like California pizza kitchen and asked her a million questions. And at the end of the grilling, she was like, um, you know, I've kind of been considering hiring an assistant and I really didn't know how to find one. Um, and I'm, I know you have like almost no experience working in management, but you have like the right attitude. Um, do you want to come work in management and work on taking back Sunday? 
I was like, oh my god, yeah. So that was kind of the end of my video career. I really uh-huh. dropped everything to go do that and really became a full-time manager and um, worked with Taking Back Sunday on those first two albums, um, which are like two of my favorite albums of all time, um, and doing you know my own management kind of on the side mm-hmm. and uh you know but working almost full-time on the taking back sunday stuff learning so much from this amazing manager named jillian uh really taught me almost everything i know um and then when that band signed to warner brothers uh it kind of seemed like a natural uh place for me um to kind of move on and that that's when i i really was like okay i'm gonna do my my own thing full time mm-hmm. and left and was just like, okay, well I got a bunch of time on my hands. Like, what do I do? So I went and, um, spent a long time looking for just a very specific type of band. I said, um, I was like, music feels really safe right now mm-hmm. and nothing is like, there's a lot of good music, but none of it's really exciting. Like where's the beastie boys and like, where's, the new kid rock and like where's all these bands that just have attitude and swagger i can't i can't find this anywhere <laughs> and i was searching and searching and searching and uh fear for the march of flames is from colorado mm-hmm. and one of their crew guys uh, actually it was a crew woman from colorado was like hey you should check out these kids from colorado um this was you know after nine months of ser- searching mm-hmm. i think you're really i think you really like them it sounds kind of like what you're looking for and it was this home movie from this band called 303. Um, and it was like their first or second show ever. And I said, yeah, that's exactly, exactly <laughs> it. Like, this is so amazing. It was just like a bunch of people on stage, dressed up, things exploding, like complete mayhem, everyone in the crowd losing their minds. Um, and me like hitting them up on email going like, I just have to meet you. You don't have to do anything or commit to anything. I just have to meet you. This video I saw is incredible. I have to see if it's like real. Uh, and got on a plane and flew to Colorado. <laughs> so awesome! That was the start of the company. Yeah, so, so that's how we started. Yeah. And they've they've uh, and I'm sure everyone listening has heard of 303, but they they what some crazy amount of sing what 15 million singles or something like that. Yeah, 15 million. So that was a really, um, I can talk about that one, I guess, for a few minutes. Sure. Um, I met them, and this is what made that one so cool, so fun, and what also made it successful, is meeting them. Their attitude was like, yo, we're not musicians. Like, we're going to grad school. Um, They had graduated, like, top of their class. Um, One of the guy's dads is, like, one of the lead, like, professors of French literature, like brilliant people mm-hmm. and uh no one went into like music going like oh this kind of music is popular i'm gonna make this kind of music they were like dude we need a break from studying like we love like this crazy hip-hop song let's just like write a crazy hip-hop song because we think it's so funny <laughs> um and they did and uh-huh. so <laughs> they just wrote like a bunch of songs and immediately like literally on the first show it translated so well because nothing was like it like you couldn't see anything like this anywhere mm-hmm. um and so as, as soon as it like hit everyone just like started to lose their minds um and so you know when i joined up with them uh they were like well we're going to grad school you have six months 
Uh, school starts in six months. So whatever we're going to do, you better do it really, really, really fast. Uh, I said, okay. <laughs> um, so we like booked some shows. And uh, there were two things that happened um, that I think really worked early. Uh, the first was, um, you know, they, they had kind of assumed, I think the kids kind of consumed that because they were like doing these rap songs, um, that they were, you know, like in the rap. What's going on, guys? This is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I want to tell you about our newest sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid distributes your music across all online platforms. They are an amazing company. I've enjoyed working with them the last few weeks, and they're going to be with us for a while, and I really, really appreciate that. I love working with great companies, and DistroKid is one of them. Uh, they have an awesome thing they're doing right now called Splits. Now, if you're working, as most people are, online, doing collaborations with people from all over the country, all over the world, as easy as that is with the internet, uh, you want to get those people paid when you put that music online. And splits can do that. You can add an unlimited amount of collaborators to any track. You can change the splits at any time. You can add or remove collaborators at any time. You can see previous splits. And all your collaborators are going to have to do is sign up for a DistroKid membership, a DistroKid account, so they can get paid. And as always, DistroKid never takes a cut. You and your collaborators get 100% of the earnings in total. A couple other awesome things that they do is they set up an official artist YouTube channel. Uh, you can use Spotify Canvas, synced lyrics, promo card to promote your release on social media, a mini video for your socials as well. There's just so many awesome things about using DistroKid. And like I said, I don't advertise things I don't use, haven't signed up for. I have signed up for this. It is a breeze, literally a breeze. And you can get going right away. So definitely check out DistroKid. And I want to give you 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. That is distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for Peer Pleasure Podcast. Once again, that is 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP. Go check out DistroKid right now. distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for 30% off. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not so grown up things like hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh, has impacted your life, uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind podcast. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. 
We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hey guys, this is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I wanted to tell you about Premium Pleasure, our premium subscription service that's available now. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. There's three tiers, tier one, tier two, and tier three. Tier one is $5 a month. It gets you the ad-free experience. Tier two gets you access to the Peer Pleasure Passcast. It gets you access to the videos of the interviews. It gets you merch discounts. Tier three is $20 a month. That gets you all of that. It gets you the Passcast, gets you the video footage, discounts on merchandise, and monthly Zoom calls with myself and other guests. We're going to have all kinds of stuff in there for you. There's all kinds of stuff in there for you now. There is, uh, I believe, 30 to 40 videos of these interviews. There is uh, multiple episodes of the Passcast. The Passcast is a podcast that I'd started separately that is me and another podcaster or me and a guest uh, discussing a deep dive into their favorite episode of Peer Pleasure. Um, so there's a bunch of those on there. So so-and-so and I would talk about the Chino Moreno episode. So-and-so and I would talk about uh, the Yvette Young episodes. And we would do a deep dive and tell where they came from, how we got the guest, stories of, of that weren't discussed on the podcast or maybe weren't in there. Um, it's just another glimpse behind the curtain. So that's the big deal with this premium service is giving you a glimpse behind the curtain of how the podcast is made, gives you access to things I'm doing and things that we're doing with the show, um, gives you, you know, ad free stuff. It gives you just all kinds of, of things that we could throw in there to help make it a valuable part of your month. Cause I put everything out there on this show. I put everything I have into this show. Um, so being able to give you guys that little bit of extra is a big deal to me and having your support is a big deal to me because if we don't support our artists and creatives, we're not going to have any left. So I appreciate it. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. Go sign up today and get some of this premium pleasure. World. Mm -hmm. And so they were, you know, they were doing shows like Snoop Dogg and Bone Thugs of Harmony and um, one thing we tried was we said, hey, you know what, maybe you can be like the really cool guys in the rock world. Uh, so we booked them a super heavy hardcore show, like uh -huh. heavy metal. And we booked them a show with Sum 41. Um, and they played the hardcore show. And the first song, every kid was sitting there like in black leather going what is this and by the second song it was like the biggest pit i'd ever seen and everyone going like yeah these dudes are cool this is awesome um same thing happening for some 41 so i think early on it was recognizing like hey you know what these dudes are really like cool in this world let's be like the coolest dudes in the room um kind of in like this work community uh -huh. and that that's what brought in a, a lot of a lot of people um, early on, the second thing um, was finding they they like wrote everything, produced everything. When it went time to like officially make a record, um, a lot of people were like, "Oh yeah, we'll put you with this like super hard, 
you know, hip-hop guy, and, like, let's just go, like, all flagged out. And um, there was this Panic at the Disco record. I mean, the first Panic record, right, that was huge. Yeah. That mm-hmm. came out. And there was just, like, all these really cool, interesting, like, synths and electronics and stuff, kind of, like, you know, kind of buried back there, like, wanting to come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and that was, you know, that album was made by a guy named Matt Squire. So... We hit up Matt Squire and was just like, hey, we just feel like you might really love this. Like, we're kind of hearing some of this stuff in, in your previous work. What do you think of this band? And he's like, dude, I love it. I get it. Let's do it. And he did, you know, that first record with the guys. Um, that is, you know, the defining record still for that band, um, which kind of put him on the map. So I think it was that combination of, like, really recognizing the audience and then really, like, figuring out the right direction musically and those two combined and it was just i mean it was just instant that's so awesome i mean and you 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 have a really cool head so i mean i i'm curious on that aha moment that you had when you realized oh man this is the biggest thing i've touched and what do we do now i mean what was what was that moment like when you're like okay now things are serious um, you know, because at that point, I'm guessing that's probably the, the, the biggest success to that date that you'd had so far as a manager um, with a band that blew up that fast. Um, was there a moment there where you were you panicked or did you just kind of take it in stride like you do with most things? You know, it's it's such a blur. I don't know if any of us could tell you what was really going on in, in our heads. Uh-huh. Um, here's what I know. I know we made a record, and everyone was like, there's no chance radio is ever going to ha- like come in on this. Radio is like way, way over here. Our record is way over here. Let's not even think about radio, cater to radio. Like, Let's just make a super fun record that we all believe in and that we all want to support. And everyone's like, yep, agreement. Label was like, yep, agreement. Agent, totally agree. Let's go do it. Made a record that was just like kind of this crazy balls out record that no one else was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, did a tour. The whole tour sold out. You know, we put them in, in kind of smaller rooms. So there'd be a line of kids, you know, who um, maybe couldn't get in that mm-hmm. would always talk about like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe uh, this crazy show, I can't get in. So the next time we came back, everyone was like, well, we better get tickets really early. Um, we came back again, sold out a second round of shows, um, and started to sell so many tickets. Um, it was sort of like 21 Pilots, right? It was like, still selling so many tickets, like kids knew, mm-hmm. but no one else knew. And there was this amazing radio guy in Denver, who ran um, a station called KTCL, who did recognize that he, he was really on the pulse of everything that was going on. Um, his name was Nerf. Started to see, like, this band is selling a lot of tickets. And so he came in and said, okay, if you're selling a lot of tickets, I got to see what's up. And he took one of the songs and was the first guy ever to put this at radio. Mm-hmm. No other radio station was even, like... One, I think it even knew who this band was, or two, would even think of playing it. Mm-hmm. And Nerf was like, dude, like this band is legit. I believe in it, and I want to do it. Um, Push the song. We worked with only that one radio station for like a month and a half. And he would get you know, all the data back on the song, and we would take all that data, and he would like write up statements and stuff. 
uh, just like I believe in this band, it's doing so well for us. And we took it to the second station, uh, which I think was maybe like Seattle or something. So six weeks in, we finally had a second station. Mm-hmm. Um, we worked those two stations for like another month and got all the data back on that. Um, by like the third or fourth month, like we had like five or six stations. And by that time, the momentum started to really you know, go. Mm-hmm. It took 11 and a half months from you know, even getting radio, like let alone all the time before that. But from our first radio, 11 and a half months to that song going number one um, and then going number one worldwide. And everyone just kind of being like, whoa, it's just like, it just keeps going. It's like yeah. crazy. Like everything you could, you know, imagine from the MTV Video Music Awards to MTV Spring Break to Rolling Stone to, it just kept going. So it felt really good, mm-hmm. right? But I think, I think part of the reason why it worked so well is because no one was like trying to write or make music or, or you know, do a record. Um based on like what the current music landscape was. Mm -hmm. And I give so much credit and respect, first of all, to the guys who are super intelligent and extremely nice um, to work with and like totally get it. Uh, But also the whole team, like there was never a point where the whole team was like, yeah, we got to like, you know, make all these hits and stuff. It was just like, dude, go make a record. We support you. And it caught on and it worked and it worked big. That's so awesome. And, and I mean, to to take something like that on and just take it in stride and work through it and and because uh, I'm sure there was some some sleepless nights and and uh, um, that's another thing I wanted to get into in a few minutes is is uh, the scheduling but um, so you had you had 303 at that point uh, Fear Before was was still doing their thing Gatsby's at that point had had uh, probably slowed down a little bit I would believe I, I think that was around. Was that around uh, the self-titled record for them when that happened? Is she had more time to work on? on that sounds uh, right. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah. So, I mean, and you also had another, you know, a little bit uh, of MTV exposure too. I, I remember we we stayed at the the house there. Oh man, we just stayed one night, and and uh, that's when we met uh, Megan Dia. Um, they were, I think they were living with you at the time. I think that's the, that's the infamous meeting where I saw that poster of the kitties and, and, uh, which I still remember this day. Uh, yeah. So I that, kitties. Um, I, I was doing all this stuff and my roommate, like I'm still scrunched into this tiny little house in, in, you know, this tiny little like bad part of town in LA, mm-hmm. um, living with a really cool like road guy who comes home one day and is like, Hey, I met these girls on tour and like they're singers and they're really good. And they just don't have enough money to like finish their record in LA. So I told them they could stay at our house. Um, I was like, okay, sure. It's fine. Uh, so it ended up being like not two girls. It was a whole band and they were there for like five weeks or six weeks. (laughs) It was like everyone stayed at my house. Um, and I don't even think we like, the schedule didn't even line up where like the first two weeks I didn't even talk to them. Like they were at the studio and I was going to work and Mm -hmm. you know, it just never lined up and we ended up talking um, and everything just kind of clicked and we ended up becoming friends and um, I never really done like, or really been drawn to like pop music Mm -hmm. and they were pretty pop music. Um, But I just like talking to them and seeing what they were doing. I just believed in it so 
much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was going to be a really great challenge. You know, for me, it's like you always have to keep learning. And so I was like, well, I've never done pop. This would be a great way to learn it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was band Megan Dia, and we ended up working together. So that was the, I think, fourth and final band on my roster at the time. Mm-hmm. So everything was keeping me, like, really busy. Um, but, you know, that was 12 years ago. And, um, you know, Gatsby broke up and Fear Before broke up. Mm-hmm. But I still manage 303, mostly as writer-producers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still manage Dia. Uh, who's, um, you know, like we've all been together now for like 12 years. Yeah. So it's like really cool. I'm like really proud of that. Um, and I would say all of us are still, you know, just as excited as the day we started. But yeah, that's what makes it a really great job. Yeah, that's awesome. And and the the one, I did, and I didn't have this question written down. There was a couple things I was thinking about here as, and with 303, how you're talking about, you know, generating some buzz and, and you know, putting in smaller rooms. I was kind of thinking of an analogy of, of kind of how you put your thumb over a garden hose that seems to spray farther and reach more area. Um, yeah. Kind of the same idea, and then you let go, and it just, just flows. I mean, uh, you know, at a steady pace versus, you know, hitting everywhere at once. And, and that seemed like a really smart move um, to, to generate your own buzz, even if there wasn't buzz to begin with. And uh, it's kind of interesting sociologically that, that – uh, how that works and how it can work. It's worked throughout time. Um, if people put in the, the time to do it and, and actually look at it that way. And, and that seems like that was really successful. And, and, uh, you know, and I remember seeing shortly after that, that time we stayed there turning on, I don't know if it was TRL or something was on MTV was on and I saw the video for monster and I was like, wait a minute, yeah, Megan Dia. that's Megan Dia. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, fast forward a bunch of years later, my, my stepdaughter and my wife are watching The Voice. And I, I hear something come on and I come out of the kitchen or whatever. And I'm looking at the screen. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> that's Dia. And then, then I was looking it up and I was like, man, I can't believe this. I, I had no idea what had transpired in that time. And, and uh, just seeing, seeing all this crazy stuff going on with, with your artists is just, it's just awesome. I mean, all oh, the work you. you put in and everything and, and your business, business model is really, really cool because I mean, it seems like you're still the same person you were in the beginning, regardless of, of the successes you've handled things the same way, um, you know, with a cool head and, and just do it kind of, kind of attitude. And and I wanted to ask the the question I didn't write down that I was thinking about before the whole garden hose mess is um, how have you handled or have you had to handle um, since it's more of a friendship uh, business relationship and a lot of people say you know don't go into business with family don't go into business with friends have you run into the situation where it's gone bad where um, you know either firing a member um, that you had to sit down and or substance abuse problems or, or things like that where the friendship may have been damaged because of the business? That is a really great question. Um, here's, here's what I believe. And I alluded to this earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, in my life, I want to do things that fulfill me mm-hmm. and I want to work with people that I look forward to working with. And that I'm excited about and that I respect on a music, a creative level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I'm not doing that, then I could certainly go be miserable 
somewhere else that made way more money, right? But mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day, that's not that's not what we're doing. Um, and so there's been a lot of bands that I had the opportunity to sign that, you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't the right match. Uh, and some I didn't sign just because I felt like it would strictly be business. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very close with everyone. Dia is actually my neighbor, one of my best friends. Uh, you know, see her literally almost every day. Mm-hmm. Um, very close with everyone. Even though we're very close, we all understand and expect that everyone is working incredibly hard. Um, I usually wake up at five in the morning and start working, usually working weekends. Um, all of my bands are on tour two to 300 days out of the year. Mm-hmm. If they're not on tour, they're at home working, writing songs in the studio, recording. We all understand that. Um, for me personally, um, I'm drug free. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's just, you know, I think I owe it to everyone to stay really focused, uh, which I am. I sort of have the reciprocal expectation of, hey, you know, you guys do what you want. You're in a rock and roll band. Um, if anything in your life is getting in the way of honoring your commitments of working really hard and treating this seriously, then that's going to become an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can honestly say because of this mutual respect and because everyone's very careful about, um, you know, who we work with. And I tell every artist before I sign them, like, you have to go meet with other managers. It's like, you don't go date someone and then just marry them and then always wonder what it's like, you know, to like go date someone else, like go meet everyone. And I'm still your guy, then I'm your guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And likewise, like, you know, I meet with a lot of bands and it's just maybe not the right fit, even though they're wonderful people. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can say in all the times I've had the company, We've never been fired, and I've never really dropped anyone um, or had to fire anyone. So with that said, it's like the best job ever, yeah. <laughs> right? Because I, I really enjoy everyone um, that I work with, and it's the same thing when we started to hire employees. You know, when 303 was doing well, I sort of felt like a sucker, like hiring someone, especially like an assistant. Like I'd been in that role. That role sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to put anyone else through it. And I hired this amazing uh, woman working in in film, mm-hmm. um, hired her over to music, and she's still at the company, you know, eight years later, and we're extremely close. I'm going to her wedding in a few months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we just, like, I think it keeps it, and I learned this from Kevin, and I learned this from Jillian taking back Sunday's manager. Mm-hmm. Um, like, if you work with really good people and you believe in it, um, and you have a positive environment around you, like, it doesn't need to be toxic. And there's so many people who are like, oh, I, you know, want to steal this band or I'm going to grind this person for this or, mm-hmm. you know, you got to speak through both sides of your mouth. Um, that doesn't really do anyone any service, right? It's like almost the opposite. And because I'm so close with everyone, you know, it's it's hard. But if I get a song back and it's like not a good song or... If, you know, someone has a video idea is not a good video, mm-hmm. um, I can say that. And people know I'm speaking genuinely from my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just lip service among anyone. Likewise, you know, my artists are always free to call me up and be like, hey, I don't think, like, this is a good move or I don't like that. Can we at least talk about it? And we discuss it. And, um, you know, I think that happens a lot better when you're, like, close and you understand 
where each other is coming from mm-hmm. because it's really easy to just make you know the the quote unquote proper moves like you know you, you uh, if you're a manager and you're like working on a band this is kind of easier. Yep, I'm sorry. I lost you. You can still. Oh, hear? I was gonna say, yeah, I was gonna say like when you when you get inside a band's head, the X Y strategy is usually the worst one, right? It's like the safest. Um, it's not really that unique. It's not custom tailored to the band and the bands that really have to cut through, there's got to be something unique about them. Mm-hmm. So by, by being really close with one another, you learn what makes a band so special and so interesting. You learn what makes, you know, what their strengths are. I think more importantly, you learn what their weaknesses are and then you can tailor the proper, you know, strategy based on that knowledge. Okay. Okay. That's and that's a good. I mean, that's a really good answer. And 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 uh, you know, from from management management that I've been around, and, and I know the Portugal guys were looking for a long time for a manager. And and uh, they, I remember them telling me every manager had just said, you know, uh, here's what I can do for you. Here's what I can do for you. Here's what I can do for you. And they finally met with Rich. I'm not sure if you know him, um, but yeah, Rich Holtzman. But he uh, showed up and and just basically asked him flat out what do you guys want to do? And they were kind of taken back and they said, well, we want to, you know, be the biggest band we can be. And he said, all right, let's do it. And that was it. I mean, it was just, then when you're talking about meeting with other managers and stuff to find out if it's the right fit, I mean, that's a really good thing. And, and your confidence too on that. And I mean, at that point, it's not necessarily from how I, how I gather it. It's not like you have something to lose necessarily, but you have everything to gain. So if they do go somewhere else, you still have your family, if they join your family, you just have a new family member that's going to build, you know, a relationship like you have so far. Yeah, and um, I totally, yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. That's a good. That's a good ending. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, we're approaching an hour here, so I had I had just a couple. Um, I, I mean, I want to to ask you a little bit about. You have a twenty four hour job. Um, it's something a lot of people don't have. And granted, it is an awesome job, especially how you've built it. Um, but how do you manage your personal life day to day having a job that requires you on call 24 hours? What a great question, uh, because clearly the answer is you don't have a personal life, <laughs> uh, which actually on a personal level has, has been difficult um, on a lot of levels. Um, how do I want to approach this? Here's the thing. I love my job. I'm doing this unless I did. If I you know, ever woke up and I was like, hey, I want to do something else, I would go do something else. Um, with that said, I think part of my responsibility as a manager is to stay creative and to like always have my head in the game. And there have been a few times where I'm so burdened with work that all I'm doing is reacting to all these situations that are coming up. And that's not good management. Mm-hmm. The the key I always have to remember is like a good manager is proactive, not reactive. Like no one comes to you with great opportunities. You are out there finding great opportunities. Mm-hmm. So if I'm getting bogged down, I'm not being creative, my good ideas aren't coming, I'm not like coming up with new plans. Um, and so there was, you know, specifically a few years ago, I was so overwhelmed. I just realized things weren't 
the same, and I was unhappy, um, which I never really felt before. It was like a really weird feeling. So I had to like cut back from a lot of things in my uh, life, um, like some of my extracurricular, and I had like a few investments and a few other businesses and things I was working on. Mm-hmm. And I cut back on that, and I said, okay, I'm going to invest in anyone. I'm going to invest in myself and hired another employee to help offload some of the work. And I went back to school uh, to learn photography and video, Mm -hmm. uh, which I do now uh, quite a bit. And, you know, I started trying a bunch of different, like, workouts and ended up uh, going to a boxing gym. And now I I go boxing, you know, four or five times a week. Okay. And have just, like, scheduled – it's basically in my calendar. Like a meeting would be, it'll be like, go to the gym, you know, for an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And it's in there. And when someone calls and is like, oh, are you free for this meeting at 6 o'clock? Oh, no, I can't do it. Let's do 7.30. Cool. Awesome. Uh, it's in there. I know it's happening. Mm-hmm. It has totally transformed my life. Um, again, back to that part where it's like in those moments, you know, I have like 30 minutes in the morning. I wake up. I try and block out 30 minutes to not work, to just read a book or just like listen to music for pleasure mm-hmm. or go for a walk or go to breakfast by myself and just like unwind. And those are ironically all of these moments like when I'm out doing video shoots and I'm like meeting other photographers and meeting other directors, like those are the people I then like hire on to do my projects. And when I'm out like reading books and just like thinking at a cafe by myself, that's when like my great marketing ideas hit. So it's um, very ironically, but I guess very obviously, uh, improved my mental health. It's mm-hmm. improved my physical health, um, but it's made the company a lot stronger, right? And like sure. all of the cool, great ideas are now like able to work their way back into my brain. Um, and so I try and, and follow that very, very, very closely and not skip. It's like so easy to be like, oh, I'm just going to skip the gym today. I'm just going to skip this. And I don't. I like force myself to go and do it. And it's been like the best thing because exactly what you asked is exactly what always happens. Mm-hmm. If you let yourself be 24-7, you'll, you'll be working 24-7, but you're not efficient. You're burnt out. Um, you're kind of just getting the job done, mm-hmm. but you're not really moving things forward. Sure. That's a great way to look at it too, and that's exactly exactly what I was thinking you were going to say. Because uh, you know you want to be the best that you can be, and and be there for your family, and and uh, you know when I say your family, I mean you know your artists, and and you've just created a really family atmosphere, and and that's really cool, and, cool. and they know they can count on you, and you can count on them because you have that expectation, and that's uh, something I think would be really good for listeners to hear is is how you set that expectation uh, of your artists and and uh, and have made maintained for so long uh, such a good relationship, and I mean the ones that have have come and gone have actually broken up. I mean it hasn't been you know uh, like you said being fired or or uh, dropping anyone. It's just as dissolved naturally um, as some relationships do. But uh, um, I had a couple uh, just just closing questions, just uh, fairly simple. Um, and you touched on it at the beginning, but I was gonna gonna ask what what do you want your your legacy to be um, that you leave behind? I mean, you talked about the goal is to leave something good behind, but but do you have a uh, an idea on on a legacy you'd like to leave behind? Uh, ooh, I've never like thought about it <laughs> out loud before. 
Um, I know the thing I always try is when people do business with the company, and this percolates through every employee we have and every band we have, um, I just want it to be positive. I just want people to be like, okay, those are good people. Like, mm-hmm. I like them. They believe in what they're doing. Um, you know, no one's out to screw anyone. Like, we're here to make a difference, which sort of leads into the second part, which for me, um, music transformed my life, and it's, you know, statistically true that it transforms your life much more when you're in high school and college and as a kid. Um, but, you know, for me, I remember those moments where I had no other outlet and I had no one else talking to me and music like shaped my life, right? It was, it was probably the most formative thing in my life and me going, okay, you know, music is doing this to me. I'm indebted to it. I'm going to give back to this community and and work on it. And we have a whole bunch of different bands at the roster, right? We have about 10 artists now, Mm -hmm. a bunch of writers, a bunch of producers. But I think all of them have some kind of very interesting mission statement um, that is unique and is about really reaching uh, people that were like me at a certain moment in my life and speaking to them, right? And Mm -hmm. so if my legacy can at all be involved being passed through the work, and people being like, oh, you know what, I heard this Tonight Alive song, and I was going through a really tough time, and it's given me a lot of personal empowerment, Mm -hmm. then that is the best thing I could hope someone would ever say. That's awesome. It's it's like uh, hoping that one of your artists becomes some some young uh, person's radio head, pretty much, where it just blows blows their mind and blows the door open on their creativity and and all that and, and being a part of that. That's, that's really cool. Um, yeah. so, uh, the last question I have is kind of a, just a closer and, and, uh, is, uh, what's, what's coming up for, for K management and, and for you, uh, in the next uh, well, the end of this year and beginning of next year. Uh, I ask myself that every day. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's kind of the challenge is every day you wake up and you're like, man, I got to do 10 things today that no one's ever done before. Uh-huh. It's tough. Um, Here's on a very broad scale um, how I would just love to see things. I still feel like it's so hard as an artist um, to make a living being an artist. And I know that because I've worked with every band I've signed since day one, Mm -hmm. uh, playing a five kids. And, you know, you pay a manager, you pay an agent, you know, 10%, you pay your publisher 25%, you're playing your record label 80, 85%, you know, you're paying your merch company, maybe 50%. Um, Then at the end of all of those commissions, you take what's left over, you pay all the expenses of tour. So you pay your crew, uh, you pay the van, you pay the gas, you pay everything. And then maybe if something's left over, uh, you split it five ways, right? And that's mm-hmm. a really hard, hard way to live. So um, instead of signing a bunch more bands, what we've been focused on here is expanding services and trying to make this whole system more efficient so that um, at the company we do artist management and that's always going to be the, the, the core pillar of everything we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have writers, we have producers, we do publishing, we have composers. Um, we work really closely with touring agencies, uh, we work really closely with merch companies. Uh, we're going to be working really closely with some labels. And by really closely, I mean um, 
hopefully a structured model that is going to, by keeping everything in-house and, and kind of amongst family, um, that you get some kind of economy of scale going mm-hmm. that uh, will lower a lot of the overhead that everyone wants to take. Mm-hmm. And if everyone can take a little bit less, then uh, it's still a win for everyone. Uh, but the bands hopefully get to put some of the more of that in their pocket. So lately I've been trying to find the right companies to partner with or to bring into our company and expand that way and uh, hopefully just change our model a little bit because it's, it's very old and no one seems to really be doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's, that seems amazing. I mean, bringing everything in-house and, and uh, kind of like a one-stop shop, it, it, it seems to have worked in other avenues as well, and I think that's going to do really well for you. I mean, well, I hope so. I mean, it would do really well or bankrupt us. So yeah, well, it's worth a shot like everything else you've <laughs> It's shot, worth you know? a shot. <laughs> yeah, we got to do it. But, you know, there's a lot of other countries. It's like if you go – most parts in Asia, you don't have a manager and a label and a booking agent. It's like you sign to like a media company, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And the media company is like the company that just handles everything. And that media company usually, you know, controls – the TV and controls, you know, a lot of radio and controls a lot of stuff. So that's on a very big corporate scale, but mm-hmm. that model um, is is very efficient, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I I like the concept of being more efficient. Perfect. Are you probably a Tim Ferriss podcast listener? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the one thing I could say is is if you do. If you shoot for this goal and it fails and you go bankrupt, you could still be hungry and sneak in somewhere else, and maybe that would change your whole trajectory into something even better. And you know what? <laughs> it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, Absolutely. I think I think at the end of the day, we all got to remember it's like we all do that. Making money in music is so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not having fun and you're not enjoying it, and it doesn't mean coming to party because that's – literally the opposite of what i'm saying sure uh, but if you can't come in and get so much fulfillment out of what you do mm-hmm. uh then there's so many other places that you could be working uh and spending your time and energy yeah so you know let's all just like do this together and respect the job and respect the craft and respect the industry and just work real hard mike that's awesome awesome advice man and and thank you so much for being on the show and and uh and coming on board, I know it's just getting started, and and I've just been having a blast doing this, and and uh, talking to my friends, and and just uh, getting everyone's take on everything, and and putting that content out there for people to hear, and and uh, I, I love the whole podcast uh, model, and and I think it's going to be awesome. So, um, thanks again for being on, and and uh, you can find uh, Mike's website at uh, kmgmt.com and check out the whole roster to see what he's up to. And uh, thanks for being on, Mike. Hey, thank you. It's been a real pleasure uh, that we've been able to stay in touch uh, over a decade. Uh, it's, it's been awesome. So thank you for having me on the show. Awesome. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to the Peer Pleasure Podcast. That was my talk with Mike Kaminsky from K Management. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, I've been having a blast making this podcast. It's been a lot of fun talking to you guys every week. The plays have been great. The feedback's been great really really appreciate you all tuning in so for those of you who haven't yet please go to itunes and subscribe uh peer pleasure podcast on itunes give us a five-star review if you like it it helps us in the chart position we're also on soundcloud we are also on stitcher 
uh, peerpleasurepodcast.com has all that information for you. All the links, you literally do a one page, everything's right there at your fingertips. If you'd like to contribute to the show, like what you're hearing, we'd love it if you clicked on that donate tab and threw some money at the show. Keep us free, keep us running every month. Because uh, right now, I mean, we just do this for fun and, and really having a blast doing it, like I said, and you guys are really important to that. So uh, once again, peerpleasurepodcast.com, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast.